Hi, this is John from Prodigal Church. We want to thank you for listening to this week's teaching. The best way to watch and listen is through our Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store. We hope you are moved to love God and others in a greater way. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Happy birthday, Prodigal. You are three years old. Uh, We have loved every second of serving alongside of you in this community that we call Prodigal. What a wild ride it has been. Happy birthday. Um, In the year 2000, when I was 19 years old, uh, I lived in southeastern Africa for six months. And near the end of those six months, my buddy and I wanted to go to one of the, the African national parks. And so we went to Lawandi National Park and we kind of mapped out the different buses that we had to take to get there. And we finally get there and we have a great time and we see crocodiles and, and elephants and hippos and all that kind of stuff. And we had a blast. Then it's starting to get a little bit late and uh, we are told that there's no more minibuses that could take us the various routes that need to get back to um, our own base in a village called Chigamula. And so we're like, well, we didn't really think this through. And so two 19-year-old guys standing off the highway in Malawi, Africa, as the sun is setting, we think of the best option, which of course was hitchhiking. And uh, we didn't think it through very well, but there's this unspoken rule in hitchhiking that Uh, And maybe it's just more common sense, okay? When a car pulls up uh, to give you a ride, instead of of telling the person where you're going, you always ask where they're going, right? This will give you a second or two to kind of check them out, look in the car, and uh, and, and just kind of scope out the lay of the land. And if, for instance, they say that they're going to, you know, the reptile convention or the assault rifle show, you can tell them that you're going to wait and catch another ride because you've already been there. Uh, I learned something hitchhiking that day. I learned that even though I needed a ride to get somewhere, I had a lot of power over who I hitched my ride with. And I know it sounds simple, but life is like that. You become like the people that you spend time with. And to a great degree, you end up going where they're headed. And for many of us, we're hitching a ride with this bus called Prodigal Church. And what an adventure we've had these first three years. I'm, uh, again, so proud to be a part of this church, and I'm proud of the direction that we are moving in together. I'm grateful for where we've been, and I'm grateful for where we're headed. Now, every year uh, for our birthday, I kind of get to speak on whatever I want. You know, the way I view it, it's, it's my party. I can cry if I want to. And so today, for our third birthday, I'll be sharing about pirates, princesses, and prodigal. Uh, several years ago, I was at my nephew's birthday party, and it was pirate-themed. And pirates still resonate with kids. But aren't they the bad guys? Right? Well, yes and no. You see, pirates were real people hundreds of years ago, and pirates emerged when unfairness and injustice was running rampant. Pirates were men who had sailed on merchant or naval vessels, and they were often pressed into service against their own wills. It was a tough life with pitiful pay if they were paid at all, terrible rations, disgusting rations that would barely sustain their strength, and the men who were their superiors were brutal. They used violence, to enforce and discipline while they ate fine foods in luxurious cabins and accrued huge amounts of wealth through their raiding and trades. 
Now, given the enormous stresses that these poor men were under in confined spaces in a ship far away from family and loved ones, it's understandable that they regularly spoke about mutiny with one another. And these men knew the cost. To turn pirate would be to immediately put, place a price tag on your head. But given the terrible mortality rates for the merchant sailors anyway, this would eventually seem less of a threat, and so a small group of men might band together, kill the captain and his minions, and then take control of the ship. Now, they then needed to make a living. And so, just as they had always done, just as every sh other ship was doing, they attacked and they plundered. And they were killed for it. And the Jolly Roger, the famous pirate flag, it's been simplified over the years to a skull and crossbones or, or swords. Traditionally, though, it showed a full skeleton holding a dagger, piercing a bleeding heart in one hand and an hourglass in the other. It was a way of saying, we know we're dead, and yet we live. The Jolly Roger meant a defiance of death. Now, I'm certainly not condoning to everything that pirates did, murder, mutiny, theft. Okay, I hope that's obvious. I don't need to clarify that. But at my nephew's party, I couldn't help but wonder, how did these brutal, brave men, bloodied in battle, laughing in the face of the gallows, become suitable heroes for a children's birthday party? A pirate-themed party? Kids walking up to other kids? Arr, I'm gonna murder and pillage you because of the unjust system of imperialism. Matey, walk the plank. I don't, I don't know how it works. Here's the one thing that I want to share with you to say on our third birthday, and it's the one thing that I think uh, is so important, and I'm going to use pirates and princesses to make my point. Here it is. Christians are to be countercultural. When there is hate, we swim upstream with love. When there is darkness, we shine the light. When there is fear and violence, we are people of peace. Now, pirates were the very definition of countercultural. In many ways, they were a prophetic voice at the time. Uh, they were the very negation of imperial culture because to turn pirate was to raise your fist at those who commanded you. It wasn't their thievery that was so heinous, so utterly villainous, but their refusal to be governed, their refusal to fall in line. Now, the trade ships and the navy ships that these pirates abandoned or killed, they weren't innocent, okay? It was a system that was grossly unfair, involving slave labor, theft of resources from indigenous peoples, all to raise enormous profits to the wealthy people back in Europe and to the captains themselves. And the sailors and the slaves absolutely had no access to the booty. So when going pirate, <laughs> okay, I said booty, I'll probably say it again. So when going pirate, you were doing what you had always been doing, taking from other people, but now you were doing it without imperial authority. Pirates spit in the face of the whole system of imperialism. And that's why they were so hated. And the Apostle Paul encouraged the early Christians in Rome to be countercultural as well, to swim upstream. He says this in Romans 12. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, 
Fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. What a message that we need to hear in this season. We should be different. There should be something different about us. The way we live, the way we speak, the way we forgive, the way we seek out others. In what ways have you fallen in line with the system? And in what ways may the Spirit of God be calling you to live counterculturally in this season? One of the key reasons pirates were hunted down so savagely was they caused such massive disruption in the slave trade. See, pirates would often attack ships that were transporting slaves, and then they would offer the slaves a chance to be free and be pirates with them. Many did. They freed slaves and thus upset the system of slavery. In a time where the church was silent on slavery, pirates were freeing them. Bartholomew Roberts, also known as Black Bart, one of the most famous pirates in the golden age of piracy, the 1700s. He had this pirate code that the crew was supposed to sign before they became pirates. And there were various things in the code, like everyone had a vote. Each crew member was to receive a regulated portion of the booty, something that was massively important for these sailors because that was something that they were not given on imperial ships. No women or boys were to be on the boat. Weapons must be kept clean at all times. No fighting on the boat. It had to be settled on land. There was no gambling on the boat. And they had this one law, that if any man loses a limb or is greatly wounded in battle, he shall be paid handsomely for their service. What a step up from the empire, where you'd be left at sea or replaced by someone, or you wouldn't be compensated at all. In fact, have you ever noticed that in almost every depiction of pirates, there's always somebody with a wooden leg, right? A hook on their arm, one eye's missing. Of course, it's because they took care of the wounded. These were the pirates of the day. That was the way it was. You wouldn't see that on the British ships. No, but the pirates were a bunch of people who had their issues, but they all belonged and were a part of something. And they were heading in the same direction together, no matter what their issues were. I don't know where you're watching this and I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey and I don't know where you are in regards to your commitment or connection to a local church. But I will say this, you belong. Doesn't matter what your issues are. You belong before you believe. You matter. And for some of you, that's all you needed to hear this week, that you matter, that you matter to us and that you matter to God. This is how the church should be. We should look more like a pirate ship full of eye patches and peg legs rather than red coats all dressed in unison. Yo ho ho, a pirate's life for me. My son kind of looks like a pirate right now. He's seven. And he had recently just lost one of his top middle teeth. And so this, his second top middle tooth, it's hanging on for dear life. And, uh, and so it's just this middle snaggle tooth and we call them snags. And uh, my son is the pirate and my daughter, she's the princess. Okay, she constantly dresses in princess dresses. 
she was a flower girl for a wedding back in February, and she put on that dress just the other day. And of course, I snapped a picture. In our house, we love the movie Frozen. It's one of my daughter's favorites. And since its release, Frozen has earned more than 1.5 billion worldwide, becoming one of the highest grossing films of all time, and by far the highest uh, grossing animation film of all time. And the film's success really transcends the commercial realm. The wait time recently at, at Disney World to meet Elsa is uh, five hours. Five hours to meet a college girl wearing a blue dress. I, I mean, Princess Elsa. This film, it struck a chord with people across the world. And I would suggest that Frozen has become what it is because in the time it was so countercultural. Now, I feel like I may have done a sermon on Frozen a while back, but you know what? It's the first time in forever. And so I'm just going to let it go. Okay? Just going to let it go. If you haven't seen it, it's the furthest thing from a typical princess movie. The handsome prince is evil. The person with magical powers is good. And not only are both lead characters women, but it is the women, not the men, who save the day. It's a, and a selfless act of sacrifice rather than true love's kiss ends up winning the moment. It spins Disney on its head. And it, it, it's given birth to a new wave of Disney movies where traditional stories of princes saving the helpless princesses, it's turned upside down. And everything about the movie is upside down. Everything about it was countercultural. Even Disney underestimated which princess would be the most popular. They made millions of Anna dolls and Elsa dolls, and they sold out of Elsa and had millions of Anna dolls left in storage. But the whole movie is leading to this moment of great power, this act of sacrificial love. The act, not of true love's kiss from Hans or Kristoff, but an act of self-sacrifice by Elsa's sister, Anna. Disney, in this film, proclaims something that it hadn't before, that true love isn't about how you feel or romantic feelings. It's, about, it's not about a kiss. It's about sacrificial action towards others. Yes, this is what Jesus shows us. It's always about action. Love is not nice, thoughtful words. Love costs something. When you love, uh, benefits accruing to the other's account at the expense of self, love gives, it doesn't take. Love is costly. Love is sacrificial action. There's a true story about a German artist named Albrecht Dürer. In one of his famous drawings, uh, Praying Hands, maybe you have seen it before. Durer's father was a goldsmith, and he apprenticed him in the early years of his life into the family trade, but he loved painting, and he really wanted to be a painter, so finally the father gave in and agreed that he could go to Nuremberg and study the arts. Unfortunately, though, his father wasn't wealthy enough to support him, so he had to work as a laborer to support himself. And the problem was, it left little time for him to develop his craft, his art skills. Now, he had a friend, Franz Niekstein, who was also a gifted artist and in the same boat. So they decided to cast lots and one would support the other while they finished their studies and then he'd support the other out of his earnings as an artist and, they, and, and send the other one back to school. And so they drew lots and Albrecht won. So Albrecht was able to devote himself to his studies of the arts. And he agreed to support Franz 
after achieving his own success. And some years later, Albrecht returned to find his friend Franz so that he could keep his end of the bargain. But when he got there, he discovered the great sacrifice that his friend had made. You see, Franz had been working as a laborer and his fingers had become twisted and stiff. His long, slender fingers and sensitive hands had been ruined for life, no longer able to paint or to draw, to use his gifts of art. But in spite of the price he had paid, Franz wasn't bitter. He was happy that his friend Albrecht had attained success. One day, Albrecht saw his friend kneeling, his hands roughly intertwined in prayer. And he quickly sketched the hands and he later used that sketch for his famous drawing, Praying Hands. He saw his friend's hands as a symbol of the sort of love that Jesus had shown us, a self-giving love that preferred the good of others, the self-emptying love that chooses servanthood. Colossians 3.14 says this, Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. Yes, there is something to that. Above all, we must put on love. Love is what we need in this pandemic season, and love is what we need in this political season. I've heard people say frequently, love is good, great, I agree. Okay, yeah, we should focus on love, though it's got to be balanced, right? We got to be balanced. God is loving, but he's also just. He's a God of holiness. They got to be balanced. Everything's got to be balanced. Folks, if love is to be above everything else, then it is not to be balanced by anything. Unless your sense of justice is under God's love, then what you think is justice is actually not just. If you take justice and you separate it from God's love, or you put it alongside of God's love, or you make it compete with God's love, then your justice will simply be a self-righteous moralism. And if you take God's holiness, and if it's not underneath God's love, if it's not governed by God's love, your holiness will become a pharisaical legalism, religiosity. The truth is there's no greater manifestation of God's justice than his love shown on Calvary's cross. And there's no greater example of God's holiness than when he poured himself out for you and me. It's all about God's love. So how can we be countercultural in this season? Love, love, it's always been about love. From pirates to princesses to prodigal, it's always about love, loving God, loving others. The way Christians are to be countercultural is to show the self-sacrificial love that we find in Jesus. That's the way we swim upstream. That's the way we become countercultural. And so for the next six weeks in our Jesus for President sermon series, we're going to be looking at Jesus to help us in the middle of this difficult political season, to be the countercultural presence that we're called to be, to disagree politically while we love unconditionally. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for these last three years of Prodigal Church. We are so thankful for the growth, for the life change, for the friendships, for the relationships. But God, we pray for more. We pray for more, Jesus. We want to see more lives impacted because of the love of God. And so, God, we thank you for the past three, and we pray for the next three, and we pray that we are led by your Spirit, making a difference in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno for our third birthday. 
Uh, next week we begin our six-week sermon series called Jesus for President, and we don't want you to miss one of them. It is going to be an incredible time uh, of elevating the conversation. Uh, are you sick and tired of the political hatred of the left and the right? Are you sick and tired of scrolling through Facebook and just throwing your phone on the ground going, I can't anymore? Are you tired of the news? What if Jesus offers a third way? We're going to be exploring that for the next six weeks, and we want to encourage you to be praying for us. We want to encourage you to be engaged. We want to encourage you to share what you see online and to process with others on what you yourself are learning. We can't wait to see you next week. Happy birthday, prodigal. Peace in the Middle East.